It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I come across a lot of interesting articles on social media because, well, the algorithm does a good job at doing what it's supposed to do, which is delivering more of what I'm clicking on. And I have clicked on a fair share of articles recently about the state of society, classism, finances. It's a subject matter that I think is relevant to our podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable, because in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about classism and privilege and wealth inequality and a lot of the things that really do affect our mental health on an individual and I also think on a collective level. One thing popped out at me, with this was yesterday. At the time of this recording, the article I'm about to reference came out one day ago. And what really jumped out at me was not the headline of the article per se, but the subhead where I went, I need to click on this. That's, by the way, the sound when I see an article that interests me. I do a little scooby sound. It's an internal. I usually don't do it out loud because no one's around to listen, but it piqued my interest. That's the sound of my interest being piqued. And I am curious, Whitney, before we dive into this article and the many fascinating ramifications, I had never heard the phrase before, optimizing children. And I thought, what in the hell is that? Optimizing children. It was enough to make me click because it gave me kind of the heebie-jeebies, to use a technical term, a technical biological term. I got the heebie-jeebies when I read that line. What does that mean, optimizing your children? Well, I found out. This article is from Vox. We have referenced Vox in the past. I like them as, as a media outlet. They have some really fascinating topics. And this one is the problem with America's semi-rich. America's upper middle class works more, optimizes their kids, and is miserable. That was definitely enough to suck me in. I thought, tell me more. What can you tell me about the upper middle class and what they're doing to their children? Well, I think it's probably no surprise to most people we have a pretty glaring and stultifying wealth inequality in America. The article just reiterates some of the statistics. And it starts out by saying that, you know, a lot of the vitriol around economic and class disparity is aimed at the 1%, the 0.1%. They hoard a disproportionate amount of wealth and are taking on an increasingly and unacceptably large part of the country's economic growth and the benefit of the boom, right? And I didn't know it was this bad, Whitney, but the the 0.1% in the US holds a similar amount of wealth as the bottom 90% of the country. I didn't know it was that high. I mean, first of all, that's like a holy shit moment. But it says here there's a space that resides 
between the 0.1% and the 90% in America that's often overlooked, the 9.9% that resides between them. There's a new book by a guy named Matthew Stewart about this 9.9%. And the interesting thing about this 9.9%, Whitney, is there's some defining characteristics of the current upper middle class. And apparently they are hyper-focused on getting their kids into really great schools and themselves into really great jobs at which they're willing to work super long, exhausting hours. They want to live in great neighborhoods, even if that means keeping other people out. We'll get to that in a second. And will pay what it takes to ensure their family's health and fitness. They believe in meritocracy. I'd never heard this phrase before, ever. Meritocracy, which apparently the definition is they believe that they've gained their positions in life, in society, by talent and hard work. They've earned what they've earned through merit. I didn't know that that was even a term, but that's what meritocracy is. They believe in markets. They're technically financially rich, but they don't feel like it, and they're always looking at someone else who's richer. The 9.9% is also terrified. While this 9.9% of the American population drives inequality, they want to lock in their positions in society for themselves and their families, and they're also driven by inequality. So dig this. They recognize that American society is increasingly one of the have-nots, and they are determined to not be one of them. This is super interesting. It, it goes into this interview in this article with, I mentioned him, Matthew Stewart, who's the author of this new book. I want to talk about meritocracy for a second because it's a brand new concept to me, Whitney. And it says the culture of the 9.9% and how they separate themselves from other people. He says the guiding ideology is meritocracy. It's a driving idea is that people get to where they are in society through a combination of talent, hard work, and study. And the main measures of that are educational attainment, material well-being, and anything that we provide to society or other people is on top of the side of that and is a reflection of our own personal virtue and not in any way necessary for social functioning or part of a good life. It's always essentially a sacrifice. The crux of this is basically these people have a lot of wealth. They're not in the billionaire class or in the hundreds of millions, but they have a lot of wealth, but they feel like it's never enough. And the only way they can get ahead is by doing more, getting more education, putting their kids in the right schools, having the right job titles. I mean, it really gets into the sort of psychosis of this upper middle class and how they feel that there is a constant pressure to not only maintain their status, but get higher up in status. Like, it, it's kind of sad. He talks about fear being the crux of this right? Like the pressure to make their kids and their jobs and their lives the best. He says the driving motivation is fear, but that fear is well-grounded. People intuit that in this meritocracy game, the odds are getting increasingly long of succeeding. They work extra hard to stack the odds in their and their children's favor, but they know as the odds get longer, they may not succeed. That's coupled with another one of the traits of this class, which is a lack of imagination. The source of this fear is also the inability to imagine a life that doesn't involve getting these high-status credentials and having a high-status occupation. The life plan looks good, and it certainly looked good in the past when the odds were more sensible, but it's not a great deal. It's something that isn't just harmful to the people who don't make it. It's also harmful for the people who get involved and do make it in some sense. 
So it's like, if you feel like you're winning at the game, you're destroying yourself in the process and sacrificing who you are, he talks about, to get ahead. And it's interesting. And it makes me wonder why. I actually do want to get this book and read it because he doesn't really cover the psychological motivations of what is driving these people to do what they do. And I think about this sometimes, Whitney, right? It's like, okay, so you know, you get the car you want and you get the really fancy house and you're making a few million dollars a year and yet you still don't feel enough and you still don't feel like it's enough and there's always room for more accomplishments, more money, more status. And you know, where I go with this is like, okay, so fucking what? Like, what are people trying to achieve? Is it brutal narcissism? Is it that they feel like once they achieve a certain level of wealth and status, they'll somehow feel safer or more protected? Like, I'm curious about what is the deeper emotional underpinnings and the psychological underpinnings of this kind of behavior. How does this hit you? I know I sent you this article earlier, you know, and we're kind of both digging into it in real time, but I'm curious if you have observed people like this growing up. If you have people in your family like this, if you know people personally that are friends that are kind of caught in this upper middle class hamster wheel of never enough. And how does that hit you? Well, it hits very close to home because I would say I'm probably around that range. And most of my friends are. You don't feel like you're in the upper middle class, Jason? I don't know what the financially what that means. Does it get into the details of like approximately how much money you have to have. Now, I'm not saying like me directly, like with the income that I make, but I guess like with the lifestyle I live and definitely the lifestyle I had growing up, it felt that way, but it's not like I was looking at dollar amounts, if this makes sense. Okay. So I just found a article on money.usnews.com. It says, where do I fall in the American economic class system? And according to this article, Wit, to answer your question that came out in December of 2020, so 10 months ago, the upper middle class range, apparently this is, I don't know if this is gross or net income, it doesn't specify, is $106,000 to $373,000 is upper middle class. So I'm definitely not upper middle class currently. But you have been. You absolutely have made that much money in a year. I have. Not to, I mean, I have. And so I'm saying, even if you don't, Currently, your lifestyle now, Jason, is not that different from your lifestyle then in a lot of ways. True. So you're still living as upper middle class, even if your current financial threshold doesn't meet that or the average or whatever. And that's what I mean, because I'm not I'm not fully up there myself, but I certainly have experienced a lot of that. Most of my friends fall into that category. And, and I don't talk to my parents about money in that sense. Like it's not clear to me. And I grew up with the privilege of not really having to think about money in that way, if it makes sense. As an adult, I'm able to look back and see how privileged I was. I mean, I grew up in a upper middle class town, you know, and If you look again, without knowing exactly how much people are making, it's to me, I'm associating with that, with the nice house and the yards and the nice cars and the ability to pay for things without being concerned about it and the clothes and on and on and on. Like that's how I grew up. Most of the people were like that in my school and my town. And when you're growing up in it, you don't 
think that much about it because you just think that everyone's similar to you in that sense, right? And it probably wasn't until I got to college and I went to a college. I, it's funny enough, I guess it's private, but my college was not a cheap college. It wasn't a state college. It was an art school. So again, it was expensive to go there. And unless you were getting a scholarship, had some, some sort of financial support from the school, you probably came from a family with a good amount of money, right? Or you put yourself in crazy debt. But I remember when I got to college, I guess that was my first major experience of being around people that didn't grow up like me, right? Like that's the truth for a lot of us. Even before then, my first major experience being around people outside of my town that were around my age was when I did the summer program in New York City. I did a one-month film program at NYU. And that was certainly full of privileged kids. In fact, a lot of them were much more privileged than me because it costs money to go to this. And they were all the kids that were going to NYU. And they were the kids that went to my film school. And that was just the world that I was in for so long. And you know, when you grow up around all these people that are like you, you don't have a lot of perspective, right? And it's interesting. And I bring this all up to say how that's had a ripple effect on my life, even though I haven't met that financial threshold of what it actually means to be upper middle class. My lifestyle has sustained that. And that's part of what's interesting to me about money too, is that, you know, having a Tesla, for example, it's a huge percentage of my expenses every month, right? So these are the sort of things that make it interesting about money is that it's it's so hard to know exactly what somebody's financial situation is based on how they're living. But I think I continue to live upper middle class, even if my income doesn't fully respect reflect that because that's been my whole life, right? And that gives me a lot of perspective on some of the things that were explained in this, especially this line of they're rich, but they don't feel like it. They're always looking at someone else who's richer. That is certainly my experience growing up. Like my sister and I did not feel like we had a lot of money, right? But relatively, and with the maturity and the the perspective that I have now, I can see absolutely we had a lot of money relative but i was in that mindset like this is describing of like oh we my parents won't get let us have everything we want you know like you're always thinking about what you don't have and i think that's very common for children but it maybe that's where it starts to some extent if you grow up in that environment the other thing that's really interesting and correlated is that line about American society is increasingly one of have-nots and they're determined not to be one of them. And so it's like, I wonder sometimes, like, do some of my financial decisions reflect my deep-seated desire not to be one of them, right? And it's not coming from any conscious bias or fear. Like, it's not about making myself like better than others as far as I'm aware. It's just like, I have been conditioned my whole life to think this way. It's always striving. And it really isn't until recently that I've tried to detach myself. But a lot of what this is touching upon, but other people are talking so much about lately is that's part of like the the cultural 
ethos or mindset or trend of just like, it's never good enough. So that have not feeling extends into all different people, despite what their class is. The other thing I found really interesting about this article is that the psychological damage to the upper middle class is kind of trivial compared to the substances damages that other people's face, but it is nonetheless pretty real. And the person interviewed in this article points to the sociological and psychological evidence that you have significant increases in anxiety-related disorders and other forms of an unhappiness, even among people who are fairly well off. It's a trade-off that all or most of them are willing to make. That's another thing I observe a ton. Fortunately, I feel like I've got that fairly under control, even though I do struggle with anxiety. I don't feel unhappy, really. Like, honestly, my experience of anxiety often feels like it's just a imbalance. It doesn't feel like it's, ugh, I don't have this or that. You know, I've taught myself how to feel really grateful and aware of my privileges. However, I witness this in other people, friends of mine, family members who are just caught up in that cycle of unhappiness and always trying to get more because they're afraid of being a have-not. They feel like they constantly have to hustle. In fact, somebody who remained anonymous, I was just speaking to an hour ago, who I'm just witnessing be consumed by the anxiety. This person worked a 12-hour day today and called them up to catch up. And they said, I can't talk to you right now. I'm so overwhelmed. I have so much anxiety. I'm feeling depressed. Like I just want to be by myself. And this is like an ongoing expression from this specific person. And it's so hard to witness this because this person has like everything that they could need. They never feel good enough. They're always striving for more and more and more. And I think the fact this point of like it's a trade off that all or most of them are willing to make they know that they have anxiety they know that they feel unhappy but they will continue putting themselves over and over again in these situations and that to me is like an epidemic of its own of just people that like they know on a cognitive logical level that their lifestyle is great and they have everything that they need and they may be even well much better off especially if they fall into this 9.9% they are literally better off the majority of the people in this country and yet they continue to feel these really unpleasant emotions and as we know these mental health issues are in many ways, just as dangerous as a lot of other issues that people that are less well off are facing. And again, I like the way that the author puts it. He's not, I think it's a man that wrote that's being interviewed here, right? They're not suggesting it's equally harmful. So I I do want to clarify, it's not necessarily equal, which I think is how I just phrased it, but it's still substantive. It's substantial because it's causing people so much distress and they're living life completely miserable. And I think some people will view that as, well, you know, they've got everything, but they're unhappy. We've talked about this a ton, Jason, right? It's like, 
that famous Jim Carrey quote, right? It's like, just because you have everything doesn't mean that you will be happy. And I think that some people that don't have that as much wealth, that aren't in that position of class and privilege may feel just like, not justified, but like, oh, well, at least I'm happy, you know? And so I feel like it kind of like makes other people feel better about themselves when they know that just because you have it all doesn't mean that you're actually truly have it all. Because what does it even mean to have it all? That's the other big question here. <laughs> that of course we keep coming back to. Like to me, the other big thing when you're talking about this, Jason, I keep thinking like, I just want to be happy and I want to help other people be happy or I want to pass on some happiness as much as I possibly can. Like that means so much to me. I don't need all of that money. You know, like we've talked about so much on this show, Jason, that you and I could do plenty of things to make more money. In fact, I had a conversation with a friend about this yesterday. I can see the path to making more money, but I am not willing to put myself in that position where I'm constantly feeling anxious. I don't want to work 12 hours a day like this other person I mentioned. Absolutely not. I don't want to come home at the end of a day feeling so stretched thin that I can't talk to the people that I love. I don't want to feel anxious and unhappy. I'm working hard every day not to. And I'm actually achieving that. I don't need to be upper middle class, right? But then it makes me think just because you're upper middle class does not mean that you feel miserable and unhappy and anxious. There's so many nuances to this. It's not like a direct correlation. It's just very common as this article is pointing out. I guess like the big takeaway is that we can't assume that money solves all the issues and money is the ultimate goal and that money is really worth it unless we are truly, truly willing to have that trade-off as this article points out. And I know I'm not. Yeah, I go back to the emotional, psychological underpinnings for this kind of behavior, right? Because if it's this ideal that people have in their minds of when I get to a certain level of status, wealth, perfection, optimization, then suddenly what? I'll love and accept myself and feel like my life is complete? Is it this sense of always chasing perfection and optimizing every aspect of our life? I mean, you get into the mental health aspects of this. And the author says, I know people who are in the top 1% of the wealth distribution who just feel incredibly poor and stretched thin because they're looking around and they see other people who've got just that much more and can do that much better. The insecurity is what runs throughout the entire system. Just because you're in the top decile or the 9.9% of society, that doesn't mean you escape it. In some ways, you're more subject to the insecurity. And that drives people to do crazy things to stay where they are and to avoid falling. Now, I, I mentioned the thing that drew me in was the optimizing your kids and how like weird and just draconian and hyper-futuristic and bizarre that statement, like optimizing your kids. Well, I clicked on an article embedded in this Vox article, and it led me to an article that says wealthy New Yorkers are dropping $375 an hour on preparatory courses to get their kids into $50,000 a year baby Ivy League kindergartens in an effort to eventually get them into top colleges. Now, I say this because last night I was going to bed 
And sometimes when I'm like drifting off to sleep, I have ideas that come through. And a phrase came through last night before I saw this article. And the phrase was, capitalism kills innocence. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Like, I didn't even know why that phrase came through my brain, right? But when I read things like this, where they're putting children under the age of five into prep courses to get them into baby Ivy League school for $50,000 a year, like, I'm no person to dish out parenting advice because I'm not a parent, but it sounds to me like this race to attain status and wealth and privilege and merit is robbing a lot of children of the experience of being children. That's my impression of it. Right? You're going to shove a kid in this baby Ivy League school to prepare them to get into Harvard or Yale someday. There's something deeply unsettling to me about that. You know, it's like he goes on to say about, like, what about the people who can't afford to super credential their kids and eventually get them into Harvard? Right? They ask the author that question. And he says, I think the underemphasized concern here is to the extent to which the other 90% end up buying into this system to some degree right? The other 90% of society. I've been in this child rearing game, the author says, and I see a lot of madness firsthand. Parents freaking out when their child takes a sip of soda out of the fridge because the parents somehow imagine this is going to make it impossible for them to demonstrate enough virtue to get into the right college. They end up curating every experience for their kids, every travel experience, every friendship. This is crazy, right? It's like, He says, I see it mostly among members of the upper middle class who can afford it, but increasingly the same sets of values and practices are spreading to where people can't afford it and where it doesn't make sense. They're also buying into this idea that kids have to be absolutely optimized and maximized so they can get onto a narrow path that leads them to a stable upper middle class future, or otherwise it's Starbucks until the end of time. So it's like these parents are micromanaging hyper-micromanaging their kids to what they eat, their friendships, where they travel, how they dress, so that they can be in that status and in that class. It's like, I mean, like he said earlier, it's it's like, it's to me, it doesn't sound like even a fear response. It sounds like there is trauma behind this. Like something happened in people's lives, maybe, where they're just like, we got to get ahead. We have to succeed. We have to beat everyone. It's like this mutated sense of competitiveness where people, in my opinion, are robbing their children of the experience, like I said, of being children, because it's like, you have to succeed at all costs. Like, I'm reflecting on whether I experienced that as a child. I don't know that I did. I didn't think my mom was like, I don't think my mom pushed me like that, but I'm wondering, Wit, like, does that resonate for you at all in your experience of childhood? Did you feel like any of that kind of pressure to like, you have to do this and you have to do this because then you're going to be successful in life? Yes and no. There certainly was some amount of pressure, but I'm not exactly sure where it all came from. Like, I guess there was this underlying pressure of like staying in the upper middle class. Like that felt important to either both my parents or one of them specifically. But in my school system, of course, I'm there amongst all these other students that are in probably similar positions because A, their parents are upper middle class too, and B, their parents around the same age. And this reminds me of that book I read, A Generation of Sociopaths, which is about the boomer generation and all of the ways that boomers have influenced their children, but the whole country 
specifically in the U.S. So it's interesting because there certainly is this mentality of keeping up with the Joneses and getting ahead and succeeding. And, you know, if you just follow this formula, you will get there. But of course, those of us who are millennials or around the millennial generation, we found that those same steps that worked for our parents did not necessarily work for us, even when we followed all of the guidance that they gave us, right? I've always been fascinated by the path that my classmates from my hometown have have gone and they've gone in all sorts of different directions. You know, I don't know of a single one of them that seems to be insanely happy and insanely successful. Like I haven't gone through and checked up each of them, but like my general viewpoint of them is like, they're probably living average millennial lives in a lot of ways. Some of them are in big cities. Some of them stayed close by in Massachusetts. But what I have witnessed, Jason, is two things. One, I grew up babysitting. And because I babysat mostly in my hometown, I was around a lot of the younger kids that I guess... I guess they might have been still millennials too, given our age gap. But maybe some of them were older Gen Z, right? I also now, of course, have a lot of friends. Most of them are millennials that have children. So I've witnessed these different generations of kids and having done so many years of babysitting in upper middle class areas, like that's the great majority of my experience. I have babysat for insanely wealthy people and also celebrities as well. And like (laughs) when you were talking, Jason, I was thinking about my job working as a personal assistant to a celebrity family and their kids were endlessly fascinating to me. They went to these private schools. They had all this money. They, They were friends with other celebrities, kids, and they were just like living in this fascinating world in Los Angeles. There was one very specific moment that I'll never forget. Their parents used to plan these insane vacations. And as a personal assistant, I had to support them in that. So, you know, working with the travel agents and planning all the details of their trips. And I remember this one trip, I forget where they were going, might've been like Switzerland or somewhere. It was somewhere beautiful. And I'm looking at these photos of where they're headed out on this trip and thinking, wow, this is so amazing. And I I said to one of the youngest child of the family, oh, aren't you so excited about this trip? It looks so great. And the child was just like, yeah, whatever. And also, I babysat for another family that, again, not knowing the details of either of their financial situations, but a general estimate, another very extremely well-off family. Very similar experience. They had three kids, and that was just life for them. They did not get excited about doing things like that because it was so commonplace for them. And I remember feeling like sad for these kids because for me, I find the greatest joy in the simplest things. Just like being present and, you know, right now I'm I'm in Massachusetts in October and it's like, I'm in complete awe every day I step outside. And it's so amazing being here at my parents' house, like where I grew up and seeing it from this lens of not being here very often because it's like, wow, like this is a pretty great place, you know, and you don't always see that when you're a kid. So I can relate to that 
feeling of being so used to something that you you don't know what it's like to not have it because you're so privileged. But in a way that actually makes me feel very sad. So there's like two sides of this, Jason, is that the constant striving and pressure that a lot of upper middle class and, and upper class people put on their children causes them to be very stressed out at young ages. They're often very high achieving and it's very common. A lot of them have a lot of restrictions. A lot of them are constantly going to classes. Like that is a extremely common experience. They're going to private schools and they have to dress a certain way. They have to you know, do all these extracurricular activities. They're hanging out with friends. Like they're just so overscheduled. That's one of the biggest things that I've noticed but they also just they just can't relax and they can't even appreciate things cuz they have it already. So it's like, all right, like I'm going to continue striving cuz I want to impress my parents and my friends and like I want to like be competitive and become this like big shot in whatever my field is, but then they get there and it's like can they even appreciate it? Have they even learned how to appreciate things? Now, it's a little different with children of my friends, because it seems because many of my friends are millennials, they fall into that category of not having a ton of money. Maybe they're still technically upper middle class. In fact, I would be willing to guess, especially with the combined income of of both parents, uh, many of which both work. Most of my friends that have kids fall into upper middle class, but it's a little different with them because I wouldn't say their lives are lavish. I would say it's a complete juggling act, but it's still in that realm of trying to optimize the kids so much that you're talking about, Jason. And with the reflections that you've shared today, it does feel a little nerve wracking, right? Like I get the feeling of like, I want what's best for my kids. So I'm going to send them to the best schools. Like that's like a huge thing that most of my friends are doing for their kids. And most of these kids are between like five to 10 range right now. And going to the quote, right school, the best school is like top of mind. And a lot of these schools cost a lot of money. And that, that is like, if I had to say the number one thing that I've heard my the parents say is that is school is a huge focus. And it's fascinating. I'm because not being a parent, I understand that education is so important, but all these schools have issues, no matter what. And it does bring up this question of like, why do they have to get into like some specific school? You know what I mean? Like it's a complicated issue, right? Like I imagine that a huge part of that, if not the main part, is like getting the quote right education, the best education. But it's like, How important is that really? I mean, to me, it would be like, are they safe? Are they protected from anything awful that could happen at school? Like, you know, are their basic needs being met? But also like, are they happy? Are they nourished? Or are they constantly stressed out? Is going to the best or the right school pushing them really hard to be great students And we all know like the school systems have so many issues with the hours that the kids have to get up and the lack of sleep that they get as a result. And, you know, there's, there's so many issues with the food at schools, like school in general just sounds like a complete nightmare and part of parenting that I'm glad I don't have to do. But I 
do you wonder, Jason, like what is that underlying fear that parents have about sending their kids to school and the pressure that they feel to pick the right school and to pay for the school and to do all the things that come along with school? It's also simultaneously, I imagine, and based on what I'm witnessing, incredibly stressful. Not to mention these parents are stretched so thin because their whole days revolve around the school themselves. So a lot of these parents are shuffling around trying to make the timing work. When do they drop them off and which parent is doing that? And do they have a nanny and blah, blah. You know, it's like, that's the side of parenting that I'm like, oh my gosh, will I ever really want to do that? (laughs) Because that doesn't sound happy to me. So why are we in this system of doing all these things where no one's really happy? The teachers aren't that happy in most cases. They're not getting paid that well. The students are stressed out and anxious and depressed and all the other issues that kids are facing these days. And the parents are completely stressed out and anxious too. It's like, I mean, school could be a whole nother topic because it just sounds like a complete nightmare. There's so much I want to say about this. To go back to the article really quickly, she asked, the interviewer asked the author about nannies and how this class, the 9.9% are obsessed with child rearing in general, right? But of course, they're so busy, they can't actually afford to be there to raise their children, so they find someone to raise them for them. So he says, nannies cost a lot. You basically have to hire another full-time individual, and that's not something that most individuals can do in this country. It's creating a definition of success that will define most people out of the running even before they start. The 9.9% have all internalized this idea that child rearing is meritocratic breeding and the measure of your success personally is how well you optimize your child as a future member of the meritocracy. So we had an amazing conversation. This is probably not coming out for a while, but a wonderful interview with Khaled, who's the who's the CEO of Legacy. We talked a lot about parenting. He basically flat out said that parenthood and having children, there's a huge element of narcissism embedded in it for a lot of people. So if you are optimizing your kid and you're, quote, setting them up for the best life, it's a reflection on you as a parent. Consequentially, if your child does not accomplish, quote, the things you think they ought to, even if the deck is stacked in their favor, well, that's a really poor reflection on you as a parent, isn't it? If you didn't get a 4.0 GPA and your kid doesn't get accepted into Harvard and doesn't graduate with honors and doesn't immediately have a six-figure job right out of college at age 21 or 22, well, you must have done something wrong as a parent then, right? I mean, he nails it in this quote is like, how well you optimize your child as a future member of meritocracy is a reflection on your success as a parent. I don't want to judge it, but that sounds kind of fucked up. And it says that means to the extent that you can't spend all of your time raising your child, you get someone else to do it. And that person's task is not child rearing as it used to be understood, which was just feeding them and preventing them from harming themselves, keeping them safe. It's about optimizing the kids. And there's no limit to what you can do to optimize them. So that's why when you're going to look for a nanny who's college educated, preferably with a degree in child psychology, who's capable of organizing all sorts of enriching experiences to grow the child. And he says, generally, I don't think it's terrible for the kids. It's just a model of parenting that is A, insane, and B, cannot conceivably be emulated by most of the population. I don't know. It just hits me in a way that just because you 
optimize your child and you have a nanny with a degree in child psychology and your kid gets into an Ivy League school and gets the six figure, it doesn't guarantee, and I think the overarching thing is that they're going to be joyful or fulfilled or feel a sense of alignment with a deep purpose on this planet. I mean, essentially, to me, there's no sense of like conversation about being here. It's, we want you to achieve a certain level of status and money and security. To me, that's what it boils down to. But does status, money, and security equal a fulfilled child, a happy child, a joyful child? Like, There's no conversation about that here. It's just, let's make sure your material status requirements are met, and then you know that should make you happy. But the point is that the parents don't sound happy. He's talking about anxiety, status anxiety, the mental health issues of the people in the upper middle class. And it's like, you want your child to emulate the lifestyle you've created for yourself when you're fucking unhappy, you're full of anxiety, your mental health is failing, and you think it's going to work for them when you're modeling their life after the life you've created for yourself? I mean, to me, that sounds like, that sounds like insanity. You do all the things that I did and more and better, and you'll be happy even though I'm not, and I kind of hate my life. It's nuts. And I don't know. It's like, what's wrong with simplicity? What's wrong with living a simpler life? You know, and another thing he purports in this article, which I think is so interesting about class disparity and racial disparity and inequality, he says in this debate of understanding the role of the 9.9%, there's a tendency for other members of the meritocratic class to say, oh, the problem is that we're hoarding these spots in society, right? We're hoarding spots at elite universities, Ivy League schools, certain professions, right? high-paid professions. What we need to do is to make sure that we're more representative and engage in higher equality so we let more people in to our class, right? That's a solution some people have proposed. He says that's wonderful for people to think about and do, but that's not going to be the solution to anything, right? He says it takes for granted that the hierarchy itself is justified and is economically productive, and it's just a matter of making sure that everyone has a fair shot of getting in. But dig this. He says, let's say you have a society, which we're not that far removed from, where you have serfs and you have lords, which is kind of pretty, I mean, it's pretty much what the fuck we're in right now. Okay, let's just call it what it is. People with a shit ton of money, wealth, and power, and everyone else who's kind of a servant. It's a crude way of saying it. But he says, let's say you have a society, you have serfs and lords, and every year you're going to have a lottery where one out of a hundred serfs will become a lord. And every year or every generation, you rotate and bring someone new in. That's not going to make a just society. He says that's going to make a more perverse society, and that's a false solution. Because you're not destroying the mechanics of classism. You're not destroying the metrics of meritocracy. You're just saying, let's let that lower income person in and brainwash them into thinking this is going to make them happy. It's not dismantling the system. Like, and it makes me think, Whitney, like all the time we talk about equality. We talk about, you know, let's make sure there's, there's, you know, a greater access to opportunities and greater access to wealth, which I think on principle, those are great ideas. But this point he's making is just because you grant access to the upper middle class, to people of uh, different ethnicities, color, sexual orientations, the mechanics of what is holding up an unfair system still exist. Like that's not fundamentally changing the system. So I agree. It doesn't sound like very much of a solution to me if it's just upholding the thing that isn't working in the first place. Right. And and speaking of solutions, 
you know, there's a little bit of one <laughs> at the end, but I think this is such a complicated issue that it's it's not an easy one to solve. He says that he doesn't think the answer is to put the 9.9% in a boat, send them out to sea and sink them. But he thinks the issue is that a class has allowed itself to delude itself about the sources of its own privilege. And its main contribution would be opening its eyes and then living and working more in accordance with what I think was the original inspiration of the class. What follows when people recognize the actual sources of their privilege is they become a little bit more humble and they are more willing to help other people, more willing to invest in the future. I don't want to give myself a pat on the back, but I feel like the greater awareness I have, I've fallen into that point where it's it's actually very humbling, right? It's humbling when you think, oh, I've been in this world that is not sustainable or kind or it doesn't fall into my values. And that desire to help people and invest in the future together is the driving force. But I have to constantly check myself on it because when you grow up with all this privilege, whether it's money or race or whatever else, it's hard to remember because you've been caught up in this bubble. And so forcing yourself to look outside of it over and over again and to really listen to what other people are going through is so incredibly important because I personally don't want to be in a place of just helping myself. And after that statement, he says, one of the most distressing statistics is that the richer people get, the less they believe in publicly supported childcare. It's not that they don't want their taxes to go to pay to childcare. It's that they've internalized this idea that everyone can do this. Everyone can raise their own child or just hire a nanny. And that's been a, a very humbling thing for me too, because I used to believe that sentiment, if I can do it, you can do it. But once I recognized how much privilege I have, it occurred to me that that statement is not true. Because when you have privilege, it puts you in a completely different place than others. So it's not fair to say, if I can do it, you can do it. Because there's so many factors that contribute to whatever doing it is. And I know people that are in the upper middle class that have that internalized idea that they think that they've made it. You know, it's, it's kind of like when that whole story around the Kardashian <laughs> Jenner, sorry, one of the Jenner girls was the first self, quote, self-made billionaire, right? Which one is it? I think, aren't there two? Kylie? Kylie, Kylie. Kylie. yes. Kylie, Kylie is the one mm. with her um, beauty care line, I believe, right? And people were outraged by it. They're like, what do you mean self-made? You grew up with so much privilege and so much money. And you've got all these family members that are bringing you press and on and on and on. And, you know, I can see the sides of it. I can see why... To an extent, she did work hard. I don't know enough about her, but from what I perceive, it's not easy to run a business like she has. There's a lot of challenges that come along, but she has privilege that gives her levels of ease that other people don't experience and may never experience, right? So that's why it's important to be aware of your privilege, especially if we're going to say something like, if I can do it, you can do it. 
which in general, I don't really believe to be true. I might be able to say that about my sister because she's on some level of equal playing field, but even her, her mind works completely differently than mine. So that statement, if I can do it, you can do is not true because her brain works differently. She might have the same privilege, but she doesn't think the way that I do. It's not as some things aren't as easy. So to me, that's like, that's a phrase I'm really trying not to say anymore because I just don't, I don't think that it's fair. And I think it's incredibly short-sighted and it is an internalized idea. And the article ends by saying, it shows how this incredibly virtuous, super well-educated class becomes oblivious to the basis of its own existence. And I think ultimately it comes back to the biggest conclusion that we have on most of our episodes, which is like awareness is the key. And awareness is basically the opposite of being oblivious. Like you have to continue to reflect on yourself relative to others. And to me, that's one of the first ways that you can start to help people because it's not always self-centered about what you can get and what your life is and all this egocentric, narcissistic behavior that we have. I think we can begin to combat that by saying, what's going on for others? What do they have that not what do they have that I don't, but what don't they have that I do have and how can I contribute to that financially or mentally or resource-wise or you know whatever it is that you have to offer. I think that's at least a step in the right direction. And then having this awareness in this bigger picture thinking, right? Like I think so many people when they're making decisions are just short-term or They're doing things because that's the way other people around them are doing it, but they're not looking at the big picture and the long-term side effects of these things and the trade-offs. And I think that we have been, as one of the biggest themes here, we've been conditioned, so many of us, that we have to be successful. And to be successful, we have to get the right education and we have to be slaves in a lot of ways to whatever work that we're doing in order to make the money. And it's like education and financial success have become these huge pinnacles. But if they don't lead us to feeling happy and satisfied and helping others, I feel like they're completely worthless. And that's why I'm letting go of a lot of those measures of success and financial things. It's like, if I can just pay my bills and do that in a way that I think is contributing to some sort of positive change or moment, to me, that's like where it's at. But it's a complicated issue. It's not that easy, I suppose. So for you, Jason, (laughs) what is your big takeaway given everything that's brought up in this article and your perspectives? The allure of things, stuff, what that stuff says about us, whether that's a degree from a specific university, how much money we make, the class we fall into based on what US News and World Report tells us. The medals, the achievements, whatever it is that we're trying to acquire or achieve, I think the sooner that we can collectively as humanity disentangle ourselves from all of those externalities actually having to do with our true being, our beingness here, we're going to see a quantum shift in how we treat each other and how we live our lives. Because right now it's I got to get a BMW. Uh, didn't get BMW. Got to get a Maserati. Got the Maserati. Need a McLaren. McLaren's not enough. And I need to get a Bugatti. It's like, 
Why? We always go in this spot. Why? Why do you feel you need that? Why do you feel you need to chase that? Why are we as humanity chasing things, status, accolades? Do we want to feel loved? Do we not feel important enough? Do we not feel significant? I mean, to me, it sounds like the hungry ghost, that there's some deep gnawing emptiness in the collective human consciousness that can't get filled by these things. And I think on some level, we know it's like being an addict. Like we just keep more, 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 more. The hole never gets filled, but yet we keep chasing the high. We keep chasing things. So I guess it leaves me as like, why do we feel we need these things? What are we trying to fill? What are we trying to feel? Because to back up your point, one of your final thoughts, Whitney, it's like, if we go about and we get the car, the house, the status, the neighborhood, the zip code, the degree, the letters after our name, and we still feel empty and sad and lost, it just seems like a brutal waste of time and effort and energy. Um, I mean, certainly there's lessons in the journey for everyone. I don't want to say it's all a waste, but I think this article among many is an opportunity for us to wake up to our behaviors and what the hell we're actually putting our emphasis on in our lives. That's what I leave with it. And I'm de-emphasizing material things in my life the more that I live. And that feels really good. I used to be really focused on like, oh man, you got a 10X and you got to make more money every single year and you got to get this kind of car and you got to live in this neighborhood. And I'm caring less and less about those things the more that I live. And honestly, it, it, I feel more and more slowly liberated the more that I let go. And I think for me to feel free, for me to feel at peace, I want to do things that make me feel free and at peace. So chasing money and status and accolades doesn't make me feel free and it doesn't make me feel peace. We are always curious to hear your thoughts. Dear listener, dear watcher, if you're on YouTube watching this, we always love to hear your reflections on the intersection of identity and emotion and class and money and everything we've talked about today, we will link to the article on Vox.com at our website, which is Wellevator.com. You can also shoot Whitney and myself a direct email, hello at Wellevator.com or a DM on social media at Wellevator. That is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And yeah, this is always a constant exploration of, I don't know, I guess, how do we come together and unify as human beings and have a more peaceful, just, equitable society. So let us know what you think. You can always comment on the show notes or send us a direct message, whatever you prefer. And until next time, Whitney and I send you our thanks to all the new patrons who are supporting us on Patreon to go through and support this podcast and uh, help us keep going. We just had a new patron this past week and that's Abby. Thank you, Abby, for your support. We really, really appreciate your listenership and your financial support to help us keep going here with This Might Get Uncomfortable. And we'll be back soon with another episode for you to enjoy. Thanks for listening and supporting. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.